we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! This is Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. I'm Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And this week we're going to be talking about an ICE law enforcement program that promotes public safety and also helps ICE with its immigration enforcement job. And we have an excellent person to talk about this. John Feary is an analyst at the center and was for a number of years before he left for the government and served in ICE for four years under the Trump administration. His last position there was acting chief of staff of ICE. So he was involved in kind of at the center of a lot of the policy debates that were going on in ICE. And one particular thing that we brought John in to talk about is this program called the 287G program. It's the shorthand based on the provision in the law. And what it amounts to is that it enables local law enforcement to send one or two people to get trained in immigration law. And they do have to, you know, they go through some pretty significant training to understand what all the different statuses are. I mean, it's bewildering sometimes to an ordinary cop who has to keep track of all the state laws that they have to enforce. So often what there is is there'll be like a point person or a couple of people who are the immigration guys because they've gotten training from the federal government. And then when they're able to do screening when they arrest people, and find out what their immigration status is and sort of get the process of deportation started for ICE. It's a partnership program. And the reason I wanted John to come in is that the Biden administration is very hostile to this program, as you can imagine, because it successfully enforces immigration laws, even though it's enforcing it against people who are arrested for local crimes. This is not a program for people just found on the street randomly who happen to be illegal aliens. You have to get yourself arrested for drunk driving or beating up your girlfriend or heck, a whole lot, a lot worse stuff here that John may be talking about. And if they don't like it at all. And specifically what they've done recently is pull the plug on the program that was being used in Bristol County, Massachusetts. That's in Southern Massachusetts. And the sheriff there has been pretty outspoken about the value of this program and wanting to continue it. And it seems they've basically targeted him and made an example of his county by pulling the plug in the program. And so John is going to tell us a little bit about what the 287G program did, sort of what were the results of it in this county, and also kind of more generally, and what's the background in the Biden administration's hostility. Thanks for joining us, John, for your first appearance, but not your last, on parsing immigration policy. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going on in this Massachusetts county? Well, thank you, Mark, and I'm happy to be here. This, as you noted, is one of the more important programs at ICE. The 287G program is a force-multiplying 
program created by Congress back in the mid-1990s. It is a program that really makes a lot of sense. As you noted, these are individuals who have been arrested by state and local law enforcement for one reason or another. Not immigration crimes. Correct. And it makes sense this type of a program would exist. If you think about it, if a local law enforcement officer is arresting for some sort of criminal act, the federal criminal investigators, the FBI, for example, is probably going to be involved. There's that existing relationship, and they're talking about the same types of law, criminal law. But when it comes to immigration law, this being a civil issue, the state and local law enforcement don't necessarily have a background in it at all. In fact, they don't, and they aren't equipped to enforce immigration laws. So when Congress created this, the goal was to create that relationship between the state and local law enforcement and the federal immigration authorities so that they can begin to identify people within their arrested population that might be open for removal. And this is a critical thing because there aren't that many ICE officers or agents out and about. There are a lot of sheriff's offices, and they're going to be the ones that are going to first cross paths with a person who's here illegally, who's engaged in some sort of crime. Maybe it's as simple as DUI. They pull the person over. They discover that he is unable to even walk a straight line. They arrest him. They bring him into the jail for prosecution on those criminal charges. But if he's here illegally, it's good for them to know that. It's good for ICE to know that so we can take custody and have the guy sent home. Well, the issue, of course, is that a lot of sheriffs don't even think about the immigration aspect unless they're properly trained. And that's where the 287G program comes in. As of May 2021, ICE has 287G agreements with 147 law enforcement agencies across 26 states. That is a real force multiplier. And a lot of the aliens that ICE takes custody of are through this very program. It's a program that has taken a lot of bad individuals off the street. It's very hard to argue against having the 287G program, but as you noted, the Obama administration cut the program down significantly without much justification. And it seems they're going to be doing this again. Some of the same people are in the White House. President Biden himself is back. And it seems that this is the first step towards gutting this program as a whole, going after this particular sheriff in Bristol County. One of the things that I thought was a, sort of a side point, but I'd noticed this myself, is that one of the things that 287G does is actually improve local cops' ability to identify who's an illegal alien. Because if you're a sheriff's deputy somewhere, you don't know about this stuff. So there's some guy, he seems to be foreign-born, you arrested him for punching his girlfriend in the face. You say, oh yeah, that guy's probably an illegal alien. Well, maybe he's not. You know what I mean? In other words, it actually, in a sense, kind of, is a way of improving the quality of policing, even in a sense almost apart from immigration-specific benefits. I mean, one thing I'd noticed on this, and this is, I don't mean to get you off track, but I went to one of these local jails that had a holding facility for ICE people. In other words, they were contracted with ICE and they held people for removal. And I remember asking the head of the jail, do you put your like newcomers in the ICE part of your county jail? He said, no, 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 no. He said, we got a lot of knuckleheads and we got to weed out people. It's only people who are proven and are 
better quality guards and workers that are the ones we let do this. So in a sense, my point here is that this kind of federal local partnership is actually a way of kind of lifting up local policing and improving the way policing is done at the local level. So anyway, I mean, I took you off track there. I think that's right. I mean, it's educational on constitutional matters. When these sheriffs are sent to the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, they get weeks of education on how the system works. And so they're going to end up making decisions that are probably going to protect them and the individuals they're arresting. It's not a bad thing at all. The Trump administration had as one of its first orders of business to expand the 287G program back to what it was prior to the gutting of it by the Obama administration. So we went to work on it. We went into all of the paperwork, the systems, the processes to see how we can make this more efficient and to see if we can make this program really what it should be. And what we discovered during that process was that, not surprisingly, the program had not only atrophied, but even the processes themselves were not efficient. They weren't really supportive of the partners that ICE was partnering with, our sheriffs. And the issue was that it was very clear to me and to everyone who was really digging into this that ICE had not treated the sheriffs properly in the development and the management of the program. We discovered, for example, that there were applications that had come in from sheriff's offices at the beginning of a year. And ICE wouldn't even consider the application until maybe sometime in the fall. And at that point, a lot of paperwork has to go through the building. There has to be an approval from the director. And then at that point, the letter goes back to the sheriff's office, maybe a full 12 months later saying, yes, we'd like you to join. Well, at that point, maybe there's been an election in the meantime. Maybe the sheriff isn't even there anymore. And that's something that was happening behind the scenes that no one really knows about, but it was a clear effort to slow down the growth of the program. So one of the first things that we did was address these type of problems. One of the first things we did was look at something called the Program Advisory Board, the PAB. The way it works when a sheriff sends in an application is the offices within ICE that have a relevant role in this program take a look at the application. They see if it's a worthwhile partnership. Are there a lot of aliens in the sheriff's jurisdiction? Do we have funding for it? Things like that. But of course, there are also other concerns. Is this sheriff's department going to be a trustworthy partner? Do they have a lot of problems? Are they dealing with litigation? Is it well run, basically? In other words, are they going to get ice in trouble? It's kind of what I'm saying. That's right. They don't want one apple to spoil the whole thing. Right, right. And so there are a lot of factors that go into this. But one of the offices that plays a role in this PAB is the Civil Rights and Civil Liberties Office up at DHS, CRCL. And the reason for that is because the IG and the GAO wanted to have greater oversight of the 287G program. And so they would have meetings once or twice a year, and they would vote yay or nay to recommend a partnership. What I discovered was that the person representing CRCL would oftentimes vote against these agreements simply for political reasons. There was one instance where the person representing CRCL voted against an agreement for Sheriff A.J. Lauterbach down in Texas, Jackson County. They didn't want him to be part of the program because they felt 
that he wasn't sufficiently supportive of President Obama's immigration policies. He was on a NPR radio interview where he talked about how the priority enforcement program at the time was allowing a lot of criminal aliens to be released, and it wasn't a good policy. And it was a very calm interview. It was an NPR interview. And nevertheless, that was enough for CRCL to vote against it. And just to clarify, CRCL is like DHS's in-house ACLU, sort of. Right. It was started for a legitimate reason. When DHS was first formed, there was all this concern that it was going to be this big department with very questionable constitutional powers, and it was going to be potentially affecting people's civil rights. So having a body there to oversee some civil rights issues within programs is not a bad thing. But under the Obama administration, that office basically turned into an anti-immigration enforcement division, in my opinion. They hired people who used to be Chuck Schumer staffers, for example. So as you said, the in-house ACLU is a good way of putting it. Most of their energies are focused on ICE programs and CBP programs, even though you have a number of other agencies within DHS. Point is, we saw all of these different reasons why the 287G program was being undermined, not to mention MOA's memorandum of agreement that had to be signed with every single sheriff's department that were almost 20 pages long. We chopped those down considerably. I think we got them down to 12 pages, took out all the stuff that was not necessary, stuff that I think was put in to make the program look like it was burdensome, to sort of scare off the city attorneys, to scare off the city council, to make it look as if this program was some overly burdensome thing that the sheriffs were joining. Well, we narrowed those things down. But most importantly, for our discussion here, we realized that ICE did not have any process that provided the sheriffs who partnered into this program some sense of certainty that ICE wasn't going to pull the rug out from underneath them at a moment's notice. Entering into these agreements is not something that a sheriff does lightly. There are a lot of considerations. There are training issues, funding issues. Like I said, these sheriffs send their officers to training at FLETC for a number of weeks. And they have to pay for the, they have to keep those people on the payroll while they're not working in the office. That's correct. And they're also up against a lot of NGO activists who are out there petitioning the city council. The media always loves to write headlines, controversial 287G program. It's never just the 287G program. Right. It's always controversial. And so there's a lot of difficulties in standing one of these up. And we wanted to make sure that if we did get to the point where we have an agreement with a partner, that there are certain processes that ICE would go through if it chose to remove the sheriff from the program. So in the MOAs that have been signed by all these sheriffs, which are available online at ICE.gov, you can read through them yourself, there are processes that the federal government is supposed to go through. So for example, if ICE were to determine that there was some sort of violation occurring, ICE has the authority to temporarily pause, suspend the program for a period of time long enough to correct whatever that problem might be. And it goes through this very clearly in the MOA what that would look like. The idea is to allow ICE to pull out, the federal government to pull out of these agreements only when there are some sort of serious misconduct or violation of the terms of the MOA. It says that verbatim in these agreements. So it's kind of like due process protections sort of for the sheriff's departments. That's exactly correct. And if ICE wants to do that, there has to be notice given to the sheriff. Right. Has to provide an overview of what these problems might be, uh, the length of the temporary suspension, 
how the law enforcement agency can provide ICE with information regarding the misconduct, as well as any corrective measures it's undertaken. These are things that ICE leadership wanted in there because the director at the time was aware of the fact that there was only a black or white option in the previous NLAs. Either you had the agreement or it was canceled. And so this sort of stepping stone, the suspension was important. And presumably, if maybe some officer is doing something that is problematic, that one officer can be removed from the 287G program duties and the other officers can continue. That was the thinking of the language. And if, for whatever reason, the problems can't be resolved, only then is ICE permitted under the NOA to move on to a complete termination. And it says verbatim, if the law enforcement agency is working to take corrective measures, ICE will generally not terminate an agreement. The termination of an agreement is generally reserved in instances involving problems that are unresolvable and detrimental to the 287G program. That's a direct quote. When it comes to the Bristol County Sheriff's Office, there is no evidence of any wrongdoing whatsoever with the program. In fact, what I have heard is that this program has been operating very well and that they have been making a number of arrests of a, a number of problematic individuals and transferring them to ICE custody. However, if DHS had gone through the proper processes here, maybe we would have an idea of what their rationale was. So they didn't give notice, they didn't do any of that stuff? They didn't do any of that at all. And in fact, the the real thing that they are supposed to do after that notice, if they want to terminate it, is provide these sheriffs 90 days notice. And they did not do that at all. Not only does ICE DHS have to provide this 90-day notice of the partnership being terminated, this notice has to include the reasons for the termination. It has to provide all available data on the total number of aliens identified through the program. It has to provide examples of egregious criminal aliens arrested through the program, and all of that has to be published on ICE.gov 90 days in advance. They didn't do any of that, and I think it's because they can't do that because they know this program has actually been a success. And we have some examples I think we published, right, in a blog post you had done a little while back about some of the criminals that had been identified. They've been arrested for their local crimes and then identified as deportable. That's right. Just to give you a sense of overall crimes across the country, in fiscal year 2020, state and local law enforcement that has been trained under the 287G program encountered approximately 920 aliens convicted for assault, over 1,200 convicted for dangerous drugs, over 100 convicted for sex assaults, 377 convicted for obstructing police, 190 convicted for weapons offenses, about 40 convicted for homicide. Those are just a few crimes. Obviously, the programs have identified a lot more aliens than that. But one of the things that we also started doing in the fall of 2019 was requiring ICE's 287G unit to produce monthly reports. I told the guys, I said, look, you guys like your program, you celebrate your program, but you don't do it publicly. So if I go to your website right now, there's nothing on here. Like, sell the program to me, guys. Right, right. You're trying to get people to join, you're trying to encourage sheriffs to join, and there's nothing on the website about how great this program is. So they went through, they redid the webpage, but they also, started producing these monthly reports. And I went through them, and these reports are not comprehensive. They're just about 15 to 20 examples of aliens that have been arrested by different jurisdictions. And so I went through all of the ones that are online, which, by the way, stopped February of this year. Surprise. Yeah. But I went through the ones that are still online and looked through Bristol County to see the type of arrests that were made. It's quite amazing that this administration would want to go after this 
particular jurisdiction because just in the past couple of years, they've identified aliens arrested for child rape, multiple types of assaults and batteries on children, sex assaults, strangulation cases, arson, attempted murder, armed carjacking, breaking and entering, various types of identity theft and fraud. I'm not sure who the constituency is that wants illegal aliens in the country who are totally deportable for their immigration purposes alone, but who have also committed armed carjacking to remain in the U.S. Who's calling for that? I'm not sure. Plenty of people, actually. <laughs> well, maybe that's right. Um, and a lot of them do live in D.C. Yeah. In fact, that's one of the things that we haven't talked about is that this whole effort to go after Bristol County seems to be initiated not just by the NGOs and the political appointees in the Biden administration, but there was a letter that Liz Warren and most of the Massachusetts delegation sent to DHS in February actually calling for the termination of the 287G agreement with Bristol County. They actually say in the letter that, you know, we understand that the Trump administration might have taken steps to make it more difficult to terminate the 287G MOA. Well, again, these weren't steps to make it more difficult. These were steps to make it more difficult to arbitrarily in these agreements. But nevertheless, the Biden administration has completely ignored them. Basically, I mean, my sense is they're doing one. They're basically daring Bristol County to sue them. I assume that's the thinking, right? Because I assume this is actionable. In other words, they can defend their rights in the MOA in court. I would think so. I think that is going to be the next step. Sure, the sheriff's office is looking into that, trying to figure out what a lawsuit might look like. The issue will always, of course, come down to what judge they get, unfortunately. But I do think that there is a certain expectation and reliance interest that the sheriffs have when joining this program. Again, it's not a program that you enter lightly. There are a lot of requirements and investments in time and money that these sheriffs have made. Ultimately, if DHS wants to pull out of it, maybe they will find some way, but I think that they would have to prove that there were some sort of violations of the law that were occurring. Or policy or whatever. In other words, some kind of violations of, the, of what they'd agreed to. Again, my sense is they may know that the Bristol County, you know, attorney or board or whoever makes those decisions is likely to kind of cave and not. I mean, in other words, there may be sort of more kind of strategic thinking behind targeting the sheriff of this county. But it's also, you know, it's federal government saying, look, we have unlimited resources. We can borrow money and print money till the cows come home for lawyers and you have to actually pay for your lawyers. So it's kind of a, it's lawfare. I, my, my sense is they're daring the county to get into a lawfare fight. I mean, it seems like the county has a pretty strong case here. Do we know whether they've taken any steps toward suing yet? Not yet, but I'm hearing that there's discussions of that. So uh, there was a letter that Sheriff himself recently publicized, I don't know, open letter or a letter to whoever it was to ICE or something about some of these issues, right? Precisely. And I think it'll be the first time that some folks in DHS leadership have actually considered this. It seems to me that their decision to end this really was very topical. They know that this sheriff was pro-immigration enforcement sheriff who appeared in plenty of pictures with President Trump, clearly political. But I really think that some of the political appointees within DHS and with the White House didn't spend much time thinking about the legal implications. I don't think they spent much time talking with any of the subject matter experts in the 287G unit. If they had, I'm assuming the folks there would have 
walk them through a lot of what we just discussed and say, guys, look, there's a process here. You got to follow it. Again, Massachusetts is not necessarily a friendly area for immigration-related lawsuits. But it's almost, a, this is more of a contract dispute in some sense, isn't it? That's I mean, my sense yeah, as well, yeah. Right. And contract law is pretty clear. Of course, there are a lot of other federal implications here and federal laws, but they didn't go after a sheriff in, in Texas. Texas, yeah, right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. That's a good point. So what's going on, as far as you know, in Bristol County? In other words, are they still able to do this 287G stuff now, or have has ICE successfully stopped them from doing it? What's the story now? No, it's been completely shut down, and there has not actually been any letters sent to the sheriff, as I understand it. It was simply a matter of some phone calls that were made. In other words, DHS leadership spoke with the ICE field office director and told that person to contact the sheriff and just tell them over a call that this is being canceled. And at that point, ICE sent its people to go and remove technology and equipment that is needed for properly vetting people who are Oh, arrested. so they do have like computer equipment that taps into ICE's databases. So they literally came in and packed up the computers? That's correct. Uh, which, which belonged to ICE, I guess. That's the reason they were able to do that. Right. So now the armed carjackers and what have you, they have no way of knowing whether the person's an illegal immigrant or not. Can't ICE, in the same way that the administration's trying to abolish ICE without abolishing ICE by not giving them anything to do and all of that, couldn't they just stop taking 287G phone calls from sheriffs? And it's like, yeah, okay, you identified this person, but we're not picking up the phone and it's not our problem. You see what I mean? Can't they just sort of end it de facto anyway? I think that's what they are doing. I think it would be helpful to dig into this further and to get some inside information about what the numbers look like now. Because my sense is that a number of aliens, hundreds of aliens, are being identified, and ICE simply is not picking them up. And that's what is happening, even outside of the 287G program. One of the things that I've heard a lot about from my former colleagues is that there are a number of detainers that ICE has issued over the past year that are suddenly becoming due. In other words, an alien was arrested, the fingerprints raised a red flag in, in ICE federal systems. ICE sent the detainer and said, hey, we know this guy, we've deported him previously. When you're done processing him for his DUI or whatever it might be, let us know, we wanna come take custody. So they might be going to prison for a year, for instance. But Certainly. the point is not that they don't get the state punishment for the crime, it's just that when it's over, they don't just let them go. They hand them over to ICE. Right. And in the case of sanctuary cities, of course, they don't acknowledge the detainers. In the case of friendly jurisdictions, they do acknowledge the detainers, and they do give ICE a heads up. ICE goes and takes custody of the individual. Or not. Or not. And right now, friendly sheriffs are coming back to ICE and saying, hey, that detainer you issued last fall, well, we're ready to do good on it, and we want to transfer this guy to you. And ICE is having to say, sorry, he doesn't fit our priorities anymore. Go ahead and release this criminal illegal alien back into your community. That's data that would be very helpful to see. Yeah, yeah, it would be. I mean, um, but it's, in some cases, sheriffs themselves have that data. In other words, it seems to me there's a way to not even, to go to go around ICE, just get it straight from the sheriffs. I think that's right. I think that's what we'll start to see happen in this particular jurisdiction on the 287G program, but just enforcement generally. And I think that the administration really hasn't contemplated that. I have a sense the sheriff here in Bristol County does understand that. And if they start releasing data on the criminal aliens that ICE is no longer taking custody of, 
I don't think that that's going to be helpful to the administration. And people can move around, obviously, but some of these aliens that they identify as illegal, or maybe ICE earlier issued a detainer and now, you know, they're finishing their 18-month sentence, say, ICE doesn't take them. Well, some of those people are going to reoffend. In fact, a lot of them are going to reoffend, as if the statistics are any indication, and they may be reoffending in the same jurisdiction. So it seems like there's going to be a lot of sheriffs who are going to have a lot of instances where they're going to be able to say, here's the paperwork. ICE asked for the guy. We called them and they said, no, we changed our mind, let him go. And then he went and committed some subsequent crime. I mean, that happens all the time, but it seems like there's going to be a lot more of it. It's sort of a a reverse on what ICE used to do under Trump. Whenever there was an alien that we had to go arrest on the streets, and it was clear that ICE had issued a detainer to the city of San Francisco a year prior, we would make a point of saying that publicly. Look, we could have arrested this guy. We could have taken custody of him. We could have deported him if San Francisco had cooperated. Sanctuary policies existed. They didn't cooperate. They released the guy. And now here's a victim as a result. Basically, we'll have sheriffs who are pro-immigration enforcement kind of doing the same thing using the Biden administration's nationwide sanctuary policy as the example here. Right, right. Yeah. So it is sort of flipping it. It's sanctuary cities versus pro-enforcement ICE, and now pro-enforcement sheriffs versus sanctuary administration, basically, is what it amounts to. Interesting. So do we know if there are other jurisdictions that the administration is going to be targeting to pull their plugs? Or is your sense this is almost like a test case to see whether these MOAs are defensible in court? I'm sure they have a list. Mm Mm-hmm. Like I said, there's 147 agreements that are on ICE.gov right now. I think it is probably a test case. They probably want to see whether this MOA can hold up legally. If they get a ruling in their favor from Massachusetts, then I would expect all these other sheriff's agreements to fold pretty quickly. Right. And in fact, it's sort of a self-serving argument. They will be saying, look, we don't really need the agreements right now because we're not really arresting people who have these crimes. So why do we have the agreement? well, we should have the agreement to arrest the aliens who are committing the crimes. All right, but we don't want to hold aliens accountable for those crimes anymore under the immigration policies. And in a sense, I mean, if you have to articulate some kind of violation by the local jurisdiction in order to vacate the MOA, there's no violation in a sense. More like ICE deciding. I mean, it is. It's ICE deciding they don't feel like doing it anymore. And the whole point of these MOAs was to prevent the sheriffs from being jerked around like that, basically. Anyway, it's going to be interesting to see what happens because even if not a test case in court, it's certainly a, it's kind of a political test case and probably will be a legal test case as well. And it'll be an interesting example of counter lawfare, if you will, because during the Trump administration, every time they turned around, there was another lawsuit. Everything you did, so whatever the heck it is, you get up in the morning and comb your hair and there's a lawsuit against that. There's the pro-enforcement side has a harder time countering, but it seems like this is an opportunity for that kind of counter lawfare. If something else happens on this, we'll have you back. And there's other issues, obviously, we want to talk about in the future. But for now, we'll leave it there. John Fury was our guest this show, all of his work is online with everybody else's work at cis.org. For this week's closing commentary, I just wanted to point to another instance of ICE local 
partnership breaking down, the kind of thing we just talked about with John Fury. What we talked about there was specifically the 287G program in Bristol County in southern Massachusetts. But something similar with a twist has happened in Butler County, Ohio, which is in southwestern Ohio, kind of outside Cincinnati. And Butler County had a contract with ICE to house ICE prisoners. In other words, it would hold people from other jurisdictions often who were transferred there and hold on to them until ICE arranged their removal, their deportation. And they were paid for that. It was a contract to basically use space that wasn't being used, bed space. And what happened there is that the sheriff in Butler County, Richard Jones, who is a very strong supporter of partnering with ICE to help keep his own community safe, to use immigration law as a way to meet his own public safety goals, he discontinued that contract with ICE on his own. In other words, it wasn't ICE pulling the plug, he pulled the plug. But one of the reasons he did that is because ICE was making it untenable for them. First, there are two things the sheriff pointed to. One was ICE constantly badgering them and changing the rules and basically making it more expensive, more trouble than it was worth to have this contract with ICE. And again, the point obviously being to kind of harass the local county out of the program so that there would be that much less opportunity for partnership between local law enforcement and ICE. But also what happened was, and the sheriff talked about this some, is that people were being shipped to his county jail for eventual pickup by ICE. They were being sent there not just from his own county, but from other counties. And even sometimes, you know, from across the state line because it's uh, near Indiana. So he was getting criminals, illegal immigrant criminals, being sent to his jail by ICE or for ICE. Uh, And he was fine with that. That was the arrangement they've had for a number of years. It's just that now, under this administration, ICE, in taking them into custody, does not then deport them. It was taking them into custody and then releasing them onto the streets of his own community. So his partnership with ICE was actually importing illegal immigrant criminals into his community in Butler County, Ohio. And so he, this was just a couple of weeks ago, said, I'm still a firm believer that our government should strictly enforce our immigration laws, and I'll continue to promote that stance at every opportunity, unquote, but that this administration had made it essentially impossible for him to do that. So this is really just one more data point in how this administration is essentially trying to abolish ICE and all of its functions and all of its partnerships with local law enforcement without actually doing so on paper. In other words, a sort of de facto end or abolition of immigration law enforcement within the United States. And it's not going to end well. This is Mark Krikorian for Parsing Immigration Policy. You can get our podcast and all the usual podcast places. It's also on our website, cis.org. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you listen in next week. Thanks.